0: Plain Spoken, episode 10. Welcome back to Plain Spoken, the podcast where we talk about how to live more quietly with greater emphasis on what truly matters. My name is Dean Abbott, and I'm the host of this show. If you'd like to connect further with me, the best way to do that is by following me on Twitter, which you can do at www.twitter backslash You can also email me directly at dean at I'd also appreciate your considering supporting me via Patreon. You can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month and get rewards, including early access to this podcast. Just go to patreon.com and search for Dean Abbott. It's also worth noting that this is the 10th episode of Plain Spoken. So as of today, I have made it all the way to 10 episodes. Not a big milestone, I suppose, but one worth noting. One of the things I uh, most enjoy about using Twitter is the opportunity to speak with people who follow me there. In the last year or so, many people have reached out to me wanting to talk about problems or issues in their lives and how they might go about solving those in a way that allows them to live more quietly. In fact, this has happened so often that I regularly talk by phone or Skype with people around the world about all sorts of issues they might be struggling with or trying to think through. So I wanted to mention here that if you'd like to ch- chat with me one-on-one, that that is possible, and I'd certainly be interested in doing that. If you want to make that happen, once again, why don't you follow me on Twitter, worldwideweb.twitter.com backslash Dean Abbott, and you can send me a direct message there, or you can just email me at Dean at DeanAbbott.com, and we'll see if we can work out a time for us to chat. One last housekeeping item before I get into what I want to talk about today is I do want to let you know that I had some big news this week, and that was that I signed my first book contract uh, several months ago back in the summer. Today is November the 20th of 2019. So probably six months ago, I started working on a proposal that I thought I would send to traditional publishers as opposed to self-publishing a book. And so I worked that up. I wrote three chapters of a book and uh, started sending it out, and I sent it to one publisher who, who rejected it. And so I retooled the whole thing and sent it to a second publisher, and they accepted. So just this week, I signed the contract to produce it. I think my deadline is November 30th of 2020. And so I expect the book to be released sometime in 2021. And I've had lots of people ask, well, what's it about? The best way to describe it is to say it's a series of chapters that are essays about character qualities. So I will write a chapter on cheerfulness, for example, or on uh, laziness and try to tie those together into some kind of comprehensive understanding of what character traits are and how they affect our overall life. So if it sounds like something you might be interested in, stay tuned and I'll keep you updated on how that goes. I posted on Twitter last week that about a year and a half ago, I changed the focus of what I was doing to really put the question of how to live more quietly at the heart of all of the things I was writing and talking about with people. And that tweet generated quite a bit of interest, so I thought I would expand on it today in this podcast. So, Prior to shifting to writing about the quieter life, I'd been doing more general cultural commentary from a right-of-center perspective. But as I watched our cultural progress, especially through the 2016 election, I began more and more to reflect on the idea that so much of our politics and of the political polarization and turmoil we see in our nation and really around the world is actually a result of great unrest in individual souls and communities. A lot of this, I think, stems from the fact that modern life itself is just by its very nature traumatizing. It's traumatizing for all sorts of reasons. The modern way of life is simply unnatural. Here, here's a good example. I don't like to drive on the interstate freeways. And people, since I was 16, have, have complained to me about that and uh, sort of tried to say, ugh, there's something wrong with you for not, want, not, not enjoying driving. On the largest and most dangerous roads in America. And it's not that I won't drive on them. It's not that I haven't driven on them, but I don't like to. And if I have the option of not doing it, I'm going to take the option of not doing it. And this is only a small example of the kinds of ways that we now live in a society that is organized around principles that our bodies themselves are not organized around and that constantly make demands of our bodies and minds and souls that are not commensurate with our limits. So let's take the interstate thing. So I've had all these people since I was 16 years old trying to convince me that something is wrong with me if I do not enjoy sitting in a metal box weighing, what, 1,000 to 2,000 pounds and hurtling through space at speeds that are simply faster than the human people have ever moved on land on a regular basis until the invention of the car, right, which was in in the large scope of history yesterday. And And so I don't enjoy that, and I certainly don't enjoy doing that when I am surrounded by other people also in metal boxes, also hurtling themselves through space at the highest level of speed they can manage. This just isn't how human beings are designed to work. So I try to avoid that. Mm -hmm. But socially, of course, it has become so accepted as a manner of travel, as a means of travel, that to resist that or to complain about it or to not like it is seen as some sort of pathology, when in fact it's just a matter of recognizing the very unnatural and often sort of traumatic nature of our commuter and traveling mobile lifestyle. But that's, that's not the only example of the ways that modernity modern life in America is traumatizing. Just consider the education most of us go through. So from the time we're little kids, four, five, six years old, we get sent to an institution which resembles a prison more than it resembles a home, chiefly because it resembles a prison because you can't, if you're locked in there, you can't leave when you want to, which is the defining characteristic of a prison, is that you can't leave it. It's also the defining characteristic of a school in modern America and so we get sent to these places where we are separated from our families and subjected to a process that routinely tells us that our needs desires concerns are irrelevant as individuals and must be subjugated to the goals of the organization and so if you're a high school student and you want to spend three or four hours of your day composing for the piano or, uh, I don't know, building bridges or whatever it is that you are passionate and interested in doing, well, you're continually told that your individual interests simply don't matter because they conflict with the smooth operation of the organization, okay? And that's not even the worst of it. If you went to public school in America, you know that part of your education is experiencing poor treatment, whether that's from teachers, whether it's from other students who bully you, but that's all part of your education, and it's a part. It's not a bug in the system, but a feature whose purpose is to teach you to be quiet, teach you to be alienated from your own perspectives and from your own needs, and to shape you to fit in to be a good cog in this larger traumatizing machine. Now, I don't want to go off on education and and my problems with the way it's done here. Uh, And so I'll keep my comments uh, limited to that. But the whole way that we grow up through that system induces a lot of trauma. On top of that, the modern era is characterized by the dissolution of the family. Everybody knows that. And when people's families fall apart and when society makes that kind of family destruction both easy and normal, there are going to be social consequences. And look around, we're facing those now. So the traumatizing forces in our society, they produce people who feel powerless, who feel insignificant as individuals. And when a society reaches a critical mass of traumatized, unhappy people who feel powerless, which is where we are now in American society for sure, those people easily fall prey to other people who desire power and so peddle a narrative that tells these people that all their pain will disappear if they support Some particular party or some particular individual's drive for power. And narratives abound for explaining people's pain in these terms. But what they all share is the idea that the pain an individual feels can be erased through the right kind of political action aimed at remaking the world In such a way as to bring ultimate justice and happiness, both to the traumatized individual and, this is part of the promise, to generations to come. So that if you are a person who's been traumatized by the structure of modern life, well, if the promise is if you support a particular political agenda, you might not be able to spare yourself that pain, but you certainly will be able to pat yourself on the back because you did what was necessary to prevent future generations of people from being traumatized in these same ways. And so what you get at the end of that is people who, with those kinds of promises, make political commitments that are as deep as the pain that they feel, which is to say that their political commitments become intense, personal. They become almost religious in the sense that political commitments become the means of salvation for the individual, and by, through the enacting of some political agenda, that individual seeks to be saved from their inner pain and and their inner demons. And so, because our political situation is now dominated by people seeking to resolve their personal pain, well, rational discussion and civil debate has basically ceased to play a role in our collective life. And you see this easily, right? So where once upon a time we lived in a world where there could be more debate because there was a greater sense of fair play and a greater sense that each side was acting in good faith, well, that is what has disappeared, and instead what we get is a kind of demonization on where any attempt at rational debate gets shut down because, or rather gets shut down through assuming the other side is not working in good faith and through casting that person not so much as mistaken as Evil, but rather as evil. And yes, it, and, and none of this is to say that all political actors are acting in good faith. I don't think that's true. What I'm really talking about here is how all of this functions at the level of the individual in pain and how that works in a larger scale in our contemporary setting. So, seeing all this a year and a half ago or so, I realized that a different approach was needed, and I saw that there was a need for material that would not fan the flames of cultural discord unnecessarily, and whose main focus would be on trying to address the underlying issues people struggle with that fuel that discord, that contribute to the hostility that's taken over the American political process. And so I settled on the concept of quieter living because I felt that that was something that I had thought about, something that I could explore in writing and speaking on this podcast— It was something that I felt I could do to make an actual contribution to public conversation and to the lives of individuals inside the current cultural and political context we are living in. And so if you are a person caught up in politics and in the idea that political change will resolve your personal problems and lessen your pain. And you might be in denial and say immediately, oh, that's not me. But take a moment and really think about that. And think about how much do you pay attention to the daily political ups and downs in our nation. Do you watch the news? Do you ardently campaign one way or the other for a political agenda. And I suppose that's okay, but really what you have to do is to reflect on why. What is it that motivates your interest in the news, in political news especially? And is that motivated primarily by a desire to see the world remade in such a way that you will feel better. And if you can be honest with yourself, you might notice that that's true. And so if that's true, here are a few things I suggest that you keep in mind. First, I suggest that you realize that you are investing in what will ultimately be a false hope. No political action is ever going to remedy your pain. In fact, the people promising you that it will remedy your pain do not, in fact, care about you at all. Every bit of energy, time, and money that you invest in activism along these lines is wasted because it will never yield the fruit that you are looking for. This is pretty clear if you look at the historical development of revolutionary movements. So this is not a unique situation in our time, but rather a part of a a pattern that we've seen repeated through history many, many times. And inevitably what happens is that we have people who engage in revolutionary politics, whose central promise is the remaking of the whole world. And of course, what happens at the end is that the people who most ardently supported that revolution also become its victims, along with everyone else. I'm thinking here most specifically of the Russian Revolution. So all of those people who supported revolutions in in Russia, for example, they were not ultimately exempt from the suffering that that revolution brought. And so the idea that somehow your personal pain can be resolved through political means always turns around to create more pain for the individual's Who worked hard to empower whatever revolutionary force was making that promise in the first place? So, what do you do? Well, number one, I think that you have to stop following politics closely. Political news and commentary is a kind of a drug that you have to detox from. The next time you're listening to the news or listening to some kind of political commentary, Pay attention to how your body feels. Look at how often you feel angry. Are your muscles tight and your heart rate elevated? Well, this is why such things are popular, because they excite your system and give you a a sort of rush. It feels good to be angry and outraged, especially when the target of your outrage and your anger is either abstract, it's an idea, or it's people you only know through the media with whom you have no direct personal interaction. And so you have no relational or professional consequences for your anger. And the fact is, that feels good. And people get addicted to that good feeling. And just like every kind of drug dealer, people in the political media know this, and they design their product to be as addictive as possible. That's why things are presented in a kind of headline manner that emphasizes the outrage. So I got clean almost two years ago now by going cold turkey. I just decided that I wasn't going to watch the news anymore. I wasn't going to involve myself in these daily controversies, and I just turned everything off. I stopped listening to political podcasts. I unfollowed a bunch of people on Twitter who write about the news and write about politics. At first it was tough, and I had to consciously choose not to consume that kind of media. And sometimes if I fell backward into doing it, I would feel myself getting more and more agitated. And I took that as a signal. It was time to back off again. Now I literally never think about it. I have found other things to do with my time and have benefited from turning my attention to matters that are perennial rather than temporal and passing. And that brings me to my third recommendation, is that you focus instead on dealing with your immediate issues, your immediate problems. It's amazing how many people are deeply addicted to political outrage while their own lives are falling apart. I suppose that's part of the reaction to trauma and It's one reason why I say this is an addiction because people cling to it, to this sort of lifestyle of consistent outrage, in spite of the fact that it has real life negative consequences. If nothing else, you become a person who is more perpetually angry. And being a perpetually angry person has definite consequences for your health and for your relationships. And nevertheless, most people continue to cling to this kind of outrage addiction. That's because their outrage, I think, serves to distract them from the problems that they could actually do something about. This kind of avoidance, of course, only compounds their misery. And then that reinforces to them the idea that if their political agenda were enacted, their misery would lift. And so we they get into a kind of vicious cycle in which they ignore those things in life that are problems that they could actually solve. And so they feel more anxious, tense, and angry. But they attribute that not to their own lack of proactivity in dealing with their immediate problems. They attribute it to the political situation because they are taught to do that by people who have an agenda, who are invested in harnessing individual anger to achieve power. And in the end, I think the way to get around this is for people to learn to be more silent. So turn off your phone. Don't be listening to that political podcast. Instead, invite more silence into your life. By eliminating news and political media, you'll find that there's more time for that. There's more time for silence. When you think about it, silence is the opposite of the political noise that pollutes so much of our culture rather than being essentially a kind of propaganda that colonizes your spirit and your mind, silence is the beginning of your inward freedom from all of that. It's in silence that you find clarity. And you learn just how much your... Addiction to noise has shaped you. People's addiction to political media and outrage makes them feel like they are doing something. That somehow listening to political critique and then tweeting their own and about it and and writing blog posts or and somehow commenting. About the political situation, it makes them feel like they have taken action. But ultimately, that's an illusion. It doesn't, those things don't actually contribute to solving any problems at that scale. And so by practicing greater silence, we can come to see what the real issues are in our lives the issues that we can actually do something about, the issues that we have been ignoring that have and, and whose denial has compounded our misery, through greater silence we can learn what those are and we can find the courage to face them. And by seeing those problems and devoting ourselves to taking routine small steps that make them better, rather than giving ourselves over to political outrage... We take important steps toward pursuing the quieter life. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll be with you again on the next episode of Plain Spoken. Until then, I hope this helps.